optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now what is the appropriate time? What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Peloton, which I've been using probably for about a year now. Peloton is a cutting-edge indoor cycling bike that brings live studio classes right into your home. You can also do on-demand, which is what I do. We'll come back to that. So you don't have to worry about fitting classes into a busy schedule or making it to a studio or gym with a hectic or unpredictable commute. I, for instance, have a Peloton bike right in my master bedroom at home, and it's one of the first things I do many mornings. I wake up, I meditate for a bit, then I knock out a short 20-minute ride in my undies, hard to do that at the gym, take a shower, and I'm in higher gear for the rest of the day. It's really convenient and has become something that I look forward to. So you have a lot of options. For one, if you like, you can ride live with thousands of other riders across the country on an interactive leaderboard to keep you motivated. There are also up to 14 new classes added every day with more than 8,000 classes on demand. And you can pick based on length, 45 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever, music, hip hop, rock and roll, or say low impact versus high intensity or interval. You can pick the class structure and style that works for you. And in my case, I quite like Matt Wilpers, and I tend to do on-demand and listen to a lot of and watch many of the same classes over and over, but I'm kind of promiscuous and also enjoy classes from a lot of the other instructors. They have Peloton, an amazing roster of incredible instructors in New York City with a whole range of styles and personalities, so you can find what you're in the mood for. You also get real-time metrics that you can use to track your performance over time, and that will help I would say catalyze you to beat your personal best. Now, that all sounds good, right? Gamification, yada, yada, yada. I didn't think that it would work for me or in any way incentivize me, but they really 100% hit the nail on the head. I was very, very impressed with how motivating it was. And it worked tremendously to keep me pushing, uh, which quite honestly takes a fair amount. I can get quite lazy, particularly with anything that edges on endurance, which is kind of more than five reps of anything for me. So... Check it out. Discover this cutting-edge indoor cycling bike that brings the studio experience right to your home. Peloton is offering listeners of this podcast a limited-time offer. Go to OnePeloton.com. That's O-N-E, Peloton, P-E-L-O-T-O-N.com, and enter the code TIM, all caps, at checkout, and get $100 off of accessories with your Peloton bike purchase. So get a great workout at home anytime you want check it out. Go to OnePeloton.com and use the code TIM to get started. This episode is brought to you by Charlotte's Web, which makes a CBD oil, a hemp extract that has become one of my go-to tools. Now, I have never really talked about CBD oil, and cannabis has never really been the plant for me. I know we're talking about hemp, uh, but Nonetheless, after several nights of inexplicable insomnia, this was about a year ago, I just could not get to sleep to save my life. And after other fixes failed, so melatonin, California poppy, extract, da-da-da-da-da, an elite athlete introduced me to this non-psychoactive extract, and bam, problem solved. I had some of the best sleep that I'd had in months. Now, I don't use sleep aids on a daily basis, but this has become part of my toolkit, and I hope to be exploring other applications soon. CBD oil products have exploded in popularity in the health and wellness and fitness worlds, and Charlotte's Web is one of the top players that offers broad-spectrum 
hemp extract with CBD in the form of oils, capsules, and topical products. Charlotte's Web products will not get you high, so that maybe that is good news, maybe bad news to you, but it does have some powerful benefits and uh, applications, and it works with your body's existing endocannabinoid system. Endo meaning from within, like endo versus exoskeleton, for instance. So endocannabinoid system works with your body. Some of the most common uses are for relief from everyday stressors, help in supporting restful sleep, which is what I most often use it for, uh, to bring about a sense of calm and focus. A lot of my friends use it for that. CBD is also known or becoming known for helping athletes to recover from exercise-induced inflammation. Charlotte's Web hemp extract has naturally occurring terpenes, flavonoids, and other valuable hemp compounds that work synergistically to heighten positive effects, sometimes referred to as the entourage effect, which you guys can look up, making it more complete than single compound CBD alternatives, or at least that is what I've been told. I do not know much about CBD alternatives nor single compound. In any case, Check it out. This stuff has really worked for me. So jump over to cwhemp.com forward slash Tim. CW is in Charlotte's web. cwhemp.com forward slash Tim to take a quick quiz, which will determine the best product for your particular aims, lifestyle, etc. And they ship to all 50 states. Charlotte's web are offering listeners of this podcast 10% off of their purchase. While there are some exclusions, I personally use the Extra Strength CBD oils or the Extra Strength capsules, and uh, you can see what might be a fit for you on that page. And there is a 30-day risk-free guarantee, so why not try it out? So get 10% off of your purchase at cwhemp.com forward slash Tim. And disclaimer, these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Enjoy. Hello, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. And this episode is a case study episode, the most requested type of episode that I've been somewhat negligent in providing. And today we have three folks with me, two co-founders, and then Elaine Pofeld. And Elaine, it's nice to have you back on the show. And uh, could you perhaps just describe for a moment, aside from being a very accomplished journalist, you're an author, and what, what, what book of yours is most relevant to the conversation we're going to be having? Well, there's only one book so far. It's The Million Dollar One Person Business. And what it looks at is how non-employer businesses, those with no employees except for the owners, are scaling to $1 million in revenue and beyond. And it's great to be here, Tim. It's, it's a subject that is endlessly fascinating to me. And to many of my listeners, one they wish I would explore more. So here we are. And uh, I have two young gentlemen across from me. I don't know them that well, so they may not be gentlemen, but I suspect they are. They're very well, be- well behaved so far. We have, we have Benedict Doman and Santiago Nestades, both 21. Is that currently the case? Great, 21. So well-aged silver foxes they met as computer science students at dartmouth college i've heard of that school very good very very good institution and they worked very long hours in the library both of them suffering from back pain this is this is relevant because they began collaborating on a prototype for a product that ended up being called the supportaback and uh 
in the process of developing it, gathered a lot of feedback from members of the Dartmouth community, including a local hospital president and professors, as well as students studying engineering and medicine. So we will revisit a lot of what we're discussing in this little intro slash summary. They also experimented with pay-per-click marketing, set up a system for testing and tracking keywords using Excel spreadsheets or spreadsheets. They launched the product first on Amazon in the UK, and Benedict, Ben, who's from Germany, is Floyd Misch, transferred to Cambridge University to be closer to his family. Santiago is based where we're recording this right now, which is Austin, Texas. And when it seemed their first small order was in danger of selling out, this I definitely want to talk about, they arranged financing from their supplier and were off and running. They've since entered the US market on Amazon, and this year they're on track for eight-figure revenue. Uh, That means this year, 2018. Next year, on track for nine-figure revenue. And uh, they are in the process of introducing uh, more than 120 consumer products, which range across many, many different categories, including beauty, skincare, pet supplies, baby supplies, food, and nutrition. And in a sense, I hope we will have time to get to this. Maybe that'll be a round two, but I think we can get into it. They are hoping to become an alternative to very large consumer products companies through a strategy of applying their scale-up strategies that they have tested successfully themselves to brands they acquire. So that's a mouthful, but I think it gives a nice overview of the landscape. Ben and uh, Santi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And I thought, Elaine, maybe I'd let you kick this one off. Sure, that sounds great. Well, Ben and Santi, one of the things I loved about your story so much was the wonderful friendship that you have. Tell us how that came to be. Yes, sure. Um, So we met originally at Dartmouth College. We were studying computer science, kind of nerdy coders, up until the library, doing our labs, um, our classes. We met because we were one of the last few guys in the library um, and it so happens that at those hours, you do eventually approach the other people around and, and see what they're working on, uh, what their struggles are, and also helping each other out. Um, so that's originally how we got, got close. Um, and yeah, just it really kicked off from there. And so how did you find out you both had back pain? I'll add on to, the, to his answer. If, um, <clears throat> you needed my help a bit in the lab, so I was always helping him out, and that's why. That is inaccurate. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, inevitably, when you're when you're over the computer, you know, you don't have the best posture, um, and and we started getting a bit of back pain that developed over time, especially when it gets to three, four a.m. So, so we took the really nerdy approach of trying to figure out why is this happening. To us, back pain seemed like something that only happened to really old people. Um, so, so we start geeking out and reading research. Um, luckily, we had access to the Dartmouth Hitchcock Hospital, which is renowned in back pain, um, and started to learn more about it and, and discovered that posture was the core driver for back pain, um, and it's something that a lot of Americans are suffering, and people around the world, because our bodies are simply not designed to be sitting down, especially hunched over a computer all day. Yeah, especially given the the new phrase, sitting is the new smoking. That was kind of the the guideline there. (laughs) Good, my my, my friend Kelly Starrett would agree. He may have even come up with that phrase. I'm not sure where it originated. How did you guys then go from complaining about a common problem and doing some homework on it and research to considering creating a product or starting a company, right? Because... Uh, I'm sure, especially in this day and age, you guys met how long ago? About three years ago now, two and a half? Two and a half years ago. Two and a half, three years ago. Um, That 
uh, there are lots of folks now hoping to learn to code or hoping to learn computer science because it has been become very clear that that is an enormous asset in entrepreneurship. So I think there are more entrepreneurs than ever within CS departments. But at, at what point did you guys decide that this is something you might consider as a business? Well, we, we, we initially developed the product mostly for, for ourselves. We started looking at what products were out there that were already working. Big believer that you don't have to reinvent the wheel, just make it slightly better. Um, so we, we took products out there, started tweaking with them, initially just for our own use. So we were, we were not trying to make it a commercial. It was not in our heads. Mm -hmm. um, eventually, so we came up with our two versions. One so you were buying off the shelf and then modifying them. The combination of many things. So we bought a whole bunch, discarded like 95%, the few that worked, and we started tweaking them and making them better, adding padding. We we're not engineers, but we, we were trying to figure it out just to increase our, our it's called proprioception, it's basically our awareness of, of, back pain, of poor posture that was leading to back pain, um, and made our two versions, one for Ben and one for myself. Um, and with time, we started seeing that our friends, who were also young, which we did not expect to also have a bit of back pain. Um, they were also coming to us and saying, hey, you know, I'm pulling an all-nighter tonight. Can I use your, your product? Or, hey, I'm going to go on a trip to New York. Can I take the product with me? Um, so that's when we, we took a step back and said, look, there's clearly a need for it. We don't know how we're going to sell it or commercialize it, but let's just, let's just sort of like the burn the ships um, approach and let's just make an order and then we'll, feel, we'll, we'll, we'll figure out how we're going to sell it once, once they <laughs> land. Yes. Uh, so that's how the first order came about. Uh, there's a bit of a story behind it. But yeah. And I think that's also where what you just mentioned, the computer science background, especially as a hotbed or a breeding ground for a lot of modern day entrepreneurs. Now this is a physical product, right? So it's not a software. Um, yeah, you're moving, moving atoms around. Exactly. <laughs> not, just <bytes. laughs> not just zeros and ones. Um, but we, we see computer science as a, as a tool, a tool kit or a tool set um, that enables us to enhance our products per se and the physical products. So it's definitely very, we've seen a lot of value in, in, in having that as our background. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So Santi, you said there's a bit of a story behind that first order. Well, let's talk about it. So, I mean, how much money did you, how much money did you guys spend on that first order and where did it come from? Why did you have the confidence? Yeah, it was under, it was under $2,000. That was a whole, our whole budget. We would put together our savings here and there as college students and, um, so we started figuring out like where, did, where are things even made. We didn't, we had no idea. So we figured out China was a main player, especially when it comes to physical products, and started learning how Alibaba was a great catalog for a lot of um, suppliers. Not necessarily the product that we wanted to make because it didn't exist. We were we were trying to make it differently, uh, but you could see through by seeing other similar products who were the key manufacturers out there in China. But obviously, with two thousand dollars, you can't get really far when it comes to to manufacturing a really big order. Um, but I refused. We, we refused to take the the approach of like we need an investor and take that as an excuse not to not to move forward. So we we made up this whole story that we were a massive company out of Boston and we had a big more <laughs> board meeting coming up, uh, and 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 we had over a hundred board members that we wanted to distribute samples to, so that they would decide together if we were going <laughs> to place the big order, and the big order was going to be like million million plus dollars. But bear with me, we only have 2,000 right now for this. <laughs> so they, 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 I don't know if they believed it or not, but they, they, did, they saw something in it, and they, they said, look, let's go with it. I'm sure the margins were, were great for them for, that, for those 2,000, but uh, um, that's how the first 100 units came about. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they put it on a ship and send it, and then we said, no, now we have 30 days to figure out how we're going to sell it. But that was the story. <laughs> now, did the reason you have 30 days because it was net 30 terms for payment, or did you set that for yourselves as a deadline? So, like, so the first order wasn't, there was no, there was no terms yet, as of yet. Um, it was just 30 days that it took to, to ship VSC. Oh, I see, to, I see. to get it over on the containers or whatever. Yeah. It was going to take 30 days. So what did you guys... What were you hatching at that time? So Ben, maybe take a stab at this. Like ha- you were, I'm sure, starting to think about how you might sell these things. Uh, were there any resources, websites, books, or anything that, that you guys were using to try to educate yourselves on entrepreneurship, marketing, sales, anything at all? Absolutely. Um, and at that point, we, so we had the time window of around 30 days to figure out how would we sell these first quote-unquote, sample unit. Um, <laughs> we delved into, first of all, researching what distribution channels were out there, looking at retail on, and especially online e-commerce distribution channels, such as Amazon, Shopify, Walmart. I mean, there's a whole range. We are big believers in focus, so finding one solution and then sticking with that until it works, um, even though there might be roadblocks on the way. And so what we did was we spoke to some people, some actually some friends of ours who had sold a, a resold a product on Amazon and I think eBay before. Um, they showed us some basic basic marketing approaches or tactics uh, relevant to Amazon and eBay, um, and we decided to go with Amazon um, and and test that out and see if it works for our products um, because obviously there's also a certain dependency. Some channels work better for other products, etc. Um, with that as a starting ground, we then had to figure out, okay, let's use this as a base, but how do we actually market our product specifically on Amazon? Now that entailed multiple parts, um, just basic marketing principles, essentially part of that was figuring out the copywriting. So we read, I personally read around four books, uh, on copywriting within those 30 days. I took around a two-day deep dive in copywriting 101 taught by myself uh, that was reading the Boron letters by, by Boron. Um, How do you spell that? B-O-R-O-N. The Boron letters. The Boron letters, very good. Um, a- any other books you remember? Yeah, there was another one called Cashvertising. Cashvertising. Which, <laughs> yes, which was very helpful, <laughs> recommended. Um, so multiple, and then I synthesized all the tactics or all the learnings from those books into one big notes document uh, came up essentially with a 20-step sales letter uh, formula synthesizing the different advices from the different books and also blogs on top of that. Your copy algorithm for, for essentially, product description. Yes. Essentially, yes. And then try to apply that to the Amazon sales page. Do you recall what some of the steps were? At this point? That's been a long time ago. Um, I can tell you that the key principles which have benefited us most in terms of copywriting and and sales have been focusing on the benefits rather than the features. A lot of uh, mistakes we see being made um, or an incorrect approach is people often take is they focus on the features of the products. Um, But what consumers or customers actually care about is what what benefits them ultimately. Mm-hmm. So constantly focusing on that is kind of the 80-20 or like the one thing to copywriting. 
mm-hmm. as the main guiding principle. Well, it uh, makes me think of uh, the iPod, which for, for those of you who weren't born in the dinosaur ages, uh, the iPod was this device about the size of a brick initially that uh, played songs, no telephone, and uh, it was not the first MP3 player that you could put in your pocket, but it was arguably the first to, instead of uh, describing and selling the product in terms of the number of gigabytes it could hold, and on technical specs said something, and I might be getting this slightly off, but a thousand songs in your pocket, right? And making the connection much more clear between the purchase and the benefits that you derive from it. Okay, so you guys are are figuring out copywriting. How are you at this point at all in in the beginning uh, separating responsibilities or investigating different things? Or are you guys all doing everything at that point? You have 30 days before these air quote sample uh, products arrive. Uh, How are you thinking of of partnering on this? Because you don't want to duplicate each other's effort constantly because that's redundant and would, would seem to be particularly abhorrent to computer science students. Uh, <laughs> so h- how are you thinking about working together? I, I wish we would have planned it. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was more like, well, we're all in this same boat together. Let's see how we can get there faster. Now I think it's more, we, we've divided that and compartmentalized that a little bit better. Um, I did gravitate a bit more towards the the keyword uh, science behind it, and and Ben was more around the copywriting and sales science behind it. We we took the same approach at everything. Is how can we make a formula for it to work every time? Right. Um, so I took a bit more the the, the paper click um, approach to it. So started understanding how did uh, keyword based algorithms work on platforms like Amazon and and why were certain products displayed? How did you figure that out? Um, or if someone came to you and said, I want to figure that out, what would your advice be? The first thing I would say is go, go understand the basics. Cause it, it actually takes a while. Um, f- it took me, it took a while for me to understand what a keyword based algorithm, like what a keyword based search is and how long tail keywords are different than short tail keywords on different types of matches. Um, so I, I looked at a course by Brian Johnson. Um, it's, it's really, it starts from the basics and it's a deep dive, um, into, what PPC is specifically on Amazon. Um, and then once you understand that, what we realized is a lot of those people were very, they really had no statistical backing to a lot of the methods that they were using to optimize. They were good rule of thumbs, but they were not necessarily the best. So we, to get an edge on that market and to get an edge on, on the keywords that we're bidding and to understand what truly are the keywords that we want to go after um, that are most likely to convert to our product, we started um, developing an algorithm or a simple formula as to what was the right bid for that specific keyword. And that was all based on when is it statistically significant to discard a keyword, whether it's to keep bidding or to adjust that bid. Mm-hmm. Am I correct? You did this all on Excel spreadsheets we at the time? It. Yes. So a lot of people think when, when they hear formulas, algorithms, you can even name it AI because nowadays they name a lot of things AI. But, uh, <laughs> Don't forget deep learning. Uh, all that. <laughs> Ultimately, it's just a simple formula. You can run it on Excel sheets. Uh, deep learning. Yeah. <laughs> it was very deep. <laughs> it was all run on Excel sheets. And that, that's when we said, look, um, and we, that, I think we got a big edge and that helped us kickstart or give that initial momentum to those hundred units that we had um, that then we started to show up organically on the... So these, these hundred units arrive, right? Just describe the day. 
So you guys are doing all this homework, getting educated. <laughs> like, like, describe the day when this stuff lands. We didn't even see it. So it went straight from, from, from China to our fulfillment network. We leveraged Amazon Fulfillment FBA yeah. um, as a fulfillment partner. They're the most efficient we found, and yet to this day we still use them. Um, we, we never saw the, the products. Them, we, we, did, we did get some samples to do some quality control, but we really didn't see the whole shipment, so it was very abstract to us. Right. Um, pe- you think about 100 units, and you actually don't even know how it looks. And still to Probably today, better for you guys in some yeah, ways. It was probably better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so they arrived, and I remember I was, I was, actually, in the, I was actually just sitting down at home. I was, I was back, uh, back with my family, and I think Ben was also back in, in Germany with his family. Yeah. Um, and we, I just looked up on the phone from, from an hour to the next, and we saw we'd sold the first day a quarter of our inventory. Um, so that caught us off guard, and that's when we, we said, okay, we're onto something, we've done something right, and let's figure out what is it that we did right, so mm-hmm. we can do it over and over. Now, were you worried that you might just sell out completely and not be able to fill the orders? We knew we, knew, we, knew we were going to sell out by yes. that point. <laughs> <laughs> but the worry was nothing compared to the excitement or overwhelm from actually having thought to have found a formula for for some sort of success in, in that marketplace what what did you do right when you look back and what i'm also trying to just so you guys have an idea of what i'm going to try to do in this interview there are certain things that people will have trouble replicating mm-hmm. if they don't have certain types of training not replicating isn't the right word learning from right uh, and then there are other principles and so on that they can borrow and apply and learn from that you guys have used. So I'll try to separate those two at different points, just because not everyone coming in is going to have the technical capabilities that you guys have, uh, or the statistical familiarity, say. Uh, but what, what, looking back, like, what did you guys do right? So you sold, you said a quarter of your inventory like we, from yeah. one hour to the next. And you're like, on one hand, you're like, high five, awesome. And then on the <laughs> other hand, you're like, oh shit. Okay. <laughs> This is, this is turning out differently than maybe we would have expected. Good news. Uh, but what, what did you do right? What did you guys do right? So I think, I think what we did right, after, after reflecting, we still reflect on it, on it today. Every, every time we do a big move, we go back and think, what did we do right and wrong? And constantly try to learn from our experience. Um, I think what we did right then was take computer science approach at developing the product. It all starts in the product. You can have amazing copy and you need to have amazing copy. You can have amazing keyword strategy and you need to have it. But it all boils down to the product. Because if you have a good product, it'll convert best and you really can outbid any competitor in any keyword or any search ranking. Also, it's so, to returns, customer service, issues, yes. all of that. All of that will take care of, of itself if you start off with having something good to offer. But obviously, we were not back pain experts. Um, we still aren't. Um, and we're not experts in, in the pet industry. We're not experts in the, the beauty industry. What we did really well was take the customer as the expert. Don't take anyone else or anything else as an expert, but take the customer. And how can we apply what we've learned, like the lean startup methodology, um, the agile method that a lot of software companies lean use. Lean startup methodology, Eric Reese. Yeah. Yes. That, that's cool. Very influent. Mm-hmm. Really, really important Eric, book for us. Eric's a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> so taking those, uh, that approach that was so common in the software to the product development is our only goal at that point was let's hear what's working out there. Let's hear what isn't. Let's put those two things together. Initially, it was for us, eventually for the market. And then it was how can we get those products on the ship as quickly as we can 
so that we can start selling. Because the day we start selling is the day we start learning. The day you start getting feedback. And this is exactly. sometimes, for people who are not familiar, referred to as the the MVP. Or yes, exactly. I think it's minimal or minimally viable product. Uh, so how do you ship in in the context of lean startup very often software, which is very easy to iterate physical products, a little more challenging, but how can you get something out into the real world with real people who are not your friends trying to tell you what you want to hear so you can get feedback that can inform better decisions? Yes. And All a right. very important concept we learned re most relevant to that is there's a clear distinction between feedback and failure. So usually what a, a lot of people react, say they, ship out a product, be it a software or, the, or a physical product, whatever, into the market, and they get zero sales, or they get very disappointed with very, very few sales. A lot of people see that as failure and decide to give up. If you take the MVP approach, you see that as feedback. So with that feedback in hand, you can then cost correct and actually identify the, the triggers or the variables that caused to the, the low sales or that caused your miss of expectations and then work on those and tweak them and then iterate again and ship out the next version or the next product and see how that compares to the previous version. So I think that that's for us that was very crucial to understand the distinction between feedback and failure. Failure is when you give up. Feedback is positive because it allows you to iterate to get better. Yeah, and just having that mindset creates a lens through which you look at things very differently, and it affects the questions that you ask, right? So before we started recording, we were chatting about podcasting a little bit, and the I want to say it was like the first or second question you guys honed in on is like, how do you learn what's working or not in the world of podcasting, which turns out to be somewhat challenging from a technical perspective, given the uh, lack of really deep and specific analytics, but that was one of your very first questions. And uh, it's, it's, if you do not have that feedback oriented mindset, it's very easy, whether something works or fails or somewhere in between to just decide what you're going to do next without looking at what happened. Right. And, but like really spending time on the post game analysis and figuring out like, all right, is this one off? Is it a problem that can, can we replicate the problem? Right. Do we think it's because the website's taking too long to load? I mean, obviously, it's slightly different with Amazon, but do we think it's because uh, the price is too high? You know, is there a way, not necessarily on Amazon, where we can offer, say, an exit pop-up that gives people a discount to to test that hypothesis? Right, then your your approach becomes very, very different. Uh, okay, so you guys are launching your MVP. You've taken a lean startup slash agile development approach to product development. You've now figured out, uh, what was the name of that book? Cash, cash advertising. Cash <laughs> God, so good. <laughs> so terrible. So bad. It's good. Cash advertising. Exactly. And, uh, uh, what are you using to track your sales at this point? Is there an Amazon dashboard that you use to track that? Or what, what are you watching? Yes, we used... So Amazon has internal dashboards just in the seller central, which is the approach we took, mm -hmm. um, where, you can, where you can see basic reporting on like sessions, conversion rate, the mm -hmm. overall sales. Um, as we grew, we then also expanded into third-party softwares, though that 
give more a more clear picture, more organized, more structured. Because I, especially in the beginnings, the Amazon's internal reports and then their structure can be very confusing. Um, and you can, for pretty cheap, already get a third-party um, software that shows you all the key metrics you actually care about in a very clear and structured format. What are some of those options? So we use one called Celix. Celix. S e l l e x. S e l l i c s. Ooh. All right. What does that mean? Is that just a brand name, or that's their is brand this name? Brand name. Okay. Yeah. We also use Cashcopro at one point. Say again. Cash Cow Pro. Cash Cow like, Pro. Like Cash Cow Business, Cash Cow. Yeah. And then Cash Cow Pro. They're really, really affordable. Um, and it, know your metrics is really knowing your metrics is really important. So yeah. Now, now speaking as someone who has not uh, sold anything on Amazon and looked at the UI uh, or the options for testing, let's just say split testing. Is it? This is more for my personal curiosity. I'm sure there's somebody out there wondering the same thing on Amazon. Uh, can you test different price points, like automatically serve like $29.99 to 30% of the audience and $19.99 to 30, another 30% of the audience and so on and so forth? It's tricky. Um, overall, from a high level, there are many different variables, like there might be a, a deal of the day running or a lightning deal. or, or There's so many variables, it's very hard to control for, say, price or for the images. There are certain tools out there who have tried to give it some type of testing. There's one called Splitly. That's Splitly. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Splitly. What they do is they subsequently test, say, image one against image two or price point one against price point two. You can't do it simultaneously, so you can't do normal A-B testing. Um, but it, it's a close, a close uh, approximation. Mm -hmm. um, and even within that, the price range very very tactically on Amazon. You can't jump the price from say nineteen ninety nine to nine ninety nine, or especially the inverse. So you can't just drastically raise the price because Amazon Amazon will then disallow you to own the buy box, which is a crucial part to your conversion rate. Um, so there are certain intricacies, um, but some approximations as to get some rough idea and mm -hmm. some rough testing. Why did you guys decide on, on Amazon versus was it primarily to simplify the fulfilled by Amazon component of the entire process or were there other reasons? I mean, Amazon is of course a behemoth, uh, outside of, well, outside of China, uh, certainly in, in the United States, highly dominant. Uh, but were there, uh, were there other reasons you guys chose Amazon as your, as your primary platform? So what we discovered was again it's really easy to, for 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 new new time entrepreneurs to get caught up on reasons or or complicating things and making it as hard as possible to get to the ultimate goal which is get to our customer we were trying to get simplify everything down to how can we get this product in front of the right customer as quickly as we can and amazon offered the fulfillment um side which which pretty much removed all the operation intricacies uh for us and it also enabled us to go to the whole european market as well um, with a with a flip of a switch, sort of say, um, and then additionally, it also simplified all the marketing. There's already active people going into Amazon trying to find solutions for their problem. Uh, people that are problem aware, or people that are product aware. There's people going out there saying, "I need 
a cushion for my back or I need a pillow to sleep better because I have back pain. Um, and they're, and they're looking to buy as opposed to find information. They have really high buying yes. intent. Um, so, so instead of figuring out how do we create awareness, how do we create product awareness and eventually get those down the funnel, which, which is a, a game or a science in and of itself, we are like, all we have to figure out is how do we convince those that are already going into Amazon that, look, we are the best solution for them. And we, we truly believe in our products. We think they're, they're better than the ones out there. So all we have to do is demonstrate that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that allowed us to do it really, really easily. Um, and Amazon, additionally, it's growing. Online is growing over retail. So it made the most sense to us. Um, and still today, yeah. we, we rely on Amazon as one of our main partners. How do you coming back to the MVP and customer feedback, uh, get actionable feedback. Uh, so part of the reason I use Amazon as much as I do is to very deliberately avoid interaction with many merchants, right? I do not want to get email. I do not want to get questionnaires. I do not want to have any more interaction than absolutely necessary. So how do you guys get feedback on products? We aggregate a whole bunch of data, and that data comes from within Amazon, but also off Amazon. Within Amazon, some of the main sections we look at are reviews, feedbacks, um, competitors' reviews, competitors' feedbacks, products in the same industry or category, their reviews, their feedbacks. So feedback and, and reviews from many I suppose questions too right? because you have the questions and answers questions so, you, and so answers. you can see what's confusing people that's another another way um, and then we scrape all of that like we have bots that aggregate that and put them into a google sheet essentially um, analyze it by keyword frequency or some search query frequency and then we try to see some statistical trends as to all right um this complaint, say, with the memory foam, this complaint has come up X many times over potentially that many purchases. It's roughly statistically significant. Um, this is something we should add to our list to then implement in, on our product development on, on the sourcing and manufacturing side. And then off Amazon as well, like looking at um, social media engagement, social media postings, etc. Aggregating all of that and then combining that and synthesizing with the on-Amazon data to come up with a list of features we can then implement on the sourcing side. And the way that works is, um, so we have this list of features for every product that we would like to implement, which we, where we see from the real customers that they crave or in some way desire that. Because it's a different story if people say, okay, this pillow, if you have two people saying this is, it's too firm for me and two other people saying it's too soft, mm-hmm. that is in no way statistically significant. <laughs> right. uh, um, so we have this list of, of suggestions, and then we speak with our manufacturers in China, um, depending on, on where the products are sourced, some are sourced in, in the EU, some in the US, all over. Um, we speak with them to evaluate how the, the feasibility of this feature, of incorporating that, um, the costs of it, how fast can they turn it around? Will it affect the lead times as to how fast they're going to even produce then all the subsequent batches? Um, and, and a whole bunch of smaller smaller decisions. If we decide to go ahead and it makes sense from a cost-benefit perspective, we implement that into the next cycle. So the next order, we already have version N plus one. Um, 
if we decide at this point it doesn't make sense to implement that, then we keep it on our on our hold list and we revisit in say three, six, nine orders down the line. We revisit, okay, does it make sense now? Does it complement any of the other features we've just incorporated in, in the past orders, et cetera? Are the and uh, I don't know I don't know if this is too much secret sauce discussion, but I'll let you decide. Uh, is are the when you say bots, right? This is a word that gets thrown a lot uh, into media that people have seen, and it's uh, I think generally poorly understood, right? The the term scraping and bots and so on. Are you guys using off? Have you used off the shelf uh, programs or services for that? Are these things that you guys have coded yourselves? How does what what does that look like? To answer your question, we've. It's a great question, by the way. Um, we've. We have computer science backgrounds, so we coded it ourselves in like Python and some some libraries that are out there anyone can use. Um, it's just a way to automate it, to, to automate the process. Um, anyone can do this. It's just, it will then require more manual work, which would otherwise be done by, by, by a script. Um, so anyone can go into 50 listings of competitor, um, competitors' products, look at their reviews, put them into an Excel sheet, and then look over and, and count the number of words or the number of queries, and then map them out, essentially. The, these are the queries. We had 45 of them over all these reviews, et cetera. Yeah, or just display as many as possible, then control F and search for whichever term, right? They show you right at yeah. the top of the browser how many occurrences. That's how we did it the it, first time. Yeah. Like, yeah. Super simple. Yeah. yeah. Have you found that the information you gathered in the European market was directly relevant to the U.S. market? Are there are there differences in terms of the types of feedback that comes in? Did you launch initially in Europe? Yes. Or it, right. Yep. So okay, yeah, that's great. Yep. That's a great question. So walk us through that. Yeah. So there are certain differences between consumers in Europe and the U.S. based on what we've seen. Obviously, our data set is very limited based on, on, our, on our own products as well as our own personal experience. Um, to give you an example, German consumers, I'm, I'm German myself, tend to focus more heavily on technical, technical aspects of the product. Shocker. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and the, the American direct response, very... To, to Germans, it seems very salesy and very off-putting. Yeah. Um, and, and similarly, across even within Europe, you have the Germans, you have the French, Spanish, Italian. <laughs> very the, different. The British. They're, they're all, <laughs> they all have very different consumer behaviors, in a sense. Mm -hmm. And so you have to cater, say, the, the copy and adjust it uh, slightly to, to each. Um, and what about the keywords? Would you, you change those also? Well, the keywords are independent of that because the keyword pillow, for instance, oh, so it's the same. They're generics. Then. Exactly. Then the product copy you use to convert them there is different. Yes. Why did you choose to launch in, outside of the U.S. first? In the U.S. would be more uniform, right? In the sense where it's like, okay, yes, people in New York are different from people in Louisiana who are different from people in Nebraska, kind of. But culturally, they're probably going to be closer or more similar than Italians versus Germans, right? I would think. So, so back then, it would have probably made more sense to launch in the U.S. 
Uh, ben had German background. We we believed that we would have an edge, at least with the German marketplace. Um, and I probably must have been at some econ class and, and taken some macro parallels to it that nowadays I just laugh at myself for it because it doesn't really make a difference. Um, but that, it was mostly serendipity. We decided to go Europe. Um, we've discovered some advantages in terms of they're, they're stricter in terms of regulation. So it forced us to, to put pro- our products through regulatory processes that then are really easy to go through once we bring them into the U.S. Mm-hmm. The market is considerably smaller. Um, it's about three times as small in terms of Amazon sizes. Um, so it allowed us also to experiment and to get that feedback on a smaller sort of sandbox. And then once those products got to the point where they were very successful and most people were really happy with them, we flipped them over to the U.S. Now that uh, That is a very common practice for a lot of big companies uh, in the sense that I believe Nike is one of them that does a good amount of their testing in New Zealand. Right? So they want to test on a native English-speaking market, but if it is a catastrophic flop, they don't want it to be in Times Square or necessarily in the larger playground or sandbox of the U.S., let's say. So they'll do a good amount of their research and initial testing and iteration in a place like New Zealand. So let's, let's backtrack for a second. Look at the phone. OMG, we've sold a quarter of our inventory. So I'm coming back to what I said I would definitely come back to. And here's the line. When it seemed their first small order was in danger of selling out quickly, I would say that the story qualifies. <laughs> they arranged financing from their supplier and were off and running. Walk us through that. Arranged financing from their supplier. This is really important, I think, because, and I don't even know the story, but most people think, and this is, this is particularly true, I think, in startup land, where people hear the word startup, and if I think particularly for a lot of people who are 20, 22-year-old, however old, CS students, like, ooh, go out, venture capital, Sand Hill Road, Silicon Valley, raise a bunch of money, and they, they have that particular narrative when they think of financing. This is something that is not that uncommon, but it's something very few people know about. So can you walk us through this? Yeah. So from the get-go, um, Ben and I, we, we went in with the mentality of removing obstacles rather than, than coming up with obstacles. Um, and we, we what had... Do you, what do you mean by that? So this is a great example is... Do you need an investor to put your second order? Otherwise, you'll run out of stock. That is, that is an obstacle that you might actually be putting there by yourself. Um, so we had this problem, which was we need to make a way bigger order now. Um, we did have the profits from the initial order. We had a clear proof of concept. Um, and we, we, we had heard this narrative where you need investors to scale. But we said there must be a better way out there. This must, there must be a quicker way out there. Um, so who do we went to? Our biggest partner so far, our, our company that would, thought we were a massive company out of Boston and said, look, we're going to place this bigger order, but as we are a big company, we expect good terms. Um, so we convinced them to, to, to give us a good payment terms. Um, what, and, and for those people who are wondering, what, yeah. what, are, what are good payment terms in this situation? Um, what, did so, you, what did you ask? Did you, first, did you ask for specific terms or did you say, what are the best terms you can offer? What, no, was no. The, what was the approach? We, we came in really demanding because we were a big company out of Boston. <laughs> <laughs> so we said, look, um, we're, we're going to be placing a bigger order. Again, we, 
we were pursuing cash flow. We were pursuing profit. We were not pursuing an investor and have a tank and spend that money and then figure out what we're going to do. So at all points, we were like, we we knew that we needed to be profitable. And the biggest issue with physical products companies is today you have to put the order that you're going to sell in three months. Yep. So if your sales are up today um, and you expect them to be even bigger, and that's a problem we still encounter on a day-to-day basis, we're going to have to put in more capital today to hopefully bake up for the sales tomorrow. Um, so, so we said, okay, the, they can be our biggest partner came up to them and said, um, big companies like Walmart expect 60-day credit terms, 100 net. And they were like, no, that's not happening. Now, explain um, for people what that means. 60-day credit. It means then, yeah. they produce the whole thing. They send you the whole batch. And then 60 days after you get it, you pay for it. And uh, then, so yeah. then, obviously, they said, no, we went back but and forth. But what was the second part of the terms? So you said 100%. So something, something net. 60-day, right? 100% net. Oh, 100% net. Or, Sorry, I missed you. Net, I got yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So... We basically don't don't put any any penny up front, and they send the whole thing, and we pay them sixty days after it arrives. Obviously, that didn't work out very well, <laughs> but it but um the ultimate thing that we understood both of us is that our scaling obviously after the, after that point they started understanding that we're we're not that big company we're a small company but we'd been really successful with that initial order, um and things came down to down to earth but they understood that we were a key player in their scale and their scalability that we're going to grow with us as the same way they're a big player in our scalability. So when you understand that, um, you're both trying to help each other. And usually the objections they have to giving you credit terms is not because they don't want to, it's because they have risk objections. They also might be cash strapped. So you, you want to sit down with them and have that honest conversation and say, look, what guarantees can I give you over this inventory or what things can I do to ease your cash flow? How can I guarantee that I'm going to pay this back in 30 days? So I think we managed to get somewhere near 50-50 or, or maybe it was, it was 70. It was 70 needed to be paid by the time it left and the other 30 needed to be paid 60 days after. And mm-hmm. since then, every time we go back to the table and we always ask for better terms, as we continue to scale. Every time we have a bigger order, that's a good opportunity to say, look, can we get better payment terms to, to do this bigger order? I want to I want to highlight something, which is you didn't assume, well, maybe you did, but you didn't stop at the no. You investigated the fears behind the no. This is really important because there may be other ways to address fears that do not include paying for everything up front. There may be other ways that you can address it, right? Uh, and, and that can range from, uh, the, not necessarily in this case, but getting a co-signer for a particular deal so that worst case scenario, they have someone to hold financially accountable who is not you, right? Or ABCDRE, right? Committing to the next four orders in some type of contractual way so that they, they mitigate the risk of getting burned on one particular deal, right? There are many different ways, or maybe they say no because they don't know who you are. Can you provide them with references of some type who will yeah. allow them yeah. to sell their supervisor on approving this because they've only been in the job for 30 days and they're not comfortable yet taking the risk to approve that particular exactly. one-off deal. There's a, there's a great book I would recommend to folks called Getting Past No, which I think is the more practical cousin of getting to yes. It's actually, <laughs> uh, and I, it's actually written, I think it's authored by one of the co-authors of, of Getting to Yes. D- did you guys just figure out negotiating on the fly or did you read anything related to that or or it was mostly on the fly trying to put ourselves in the other party's shoes and then making our decision based on that Mm -hmm. so it's i guess principles from game theory which we took a class on at school yeah that helps a lot 
All right. So, and Elaine, feel free to jump in at any time since you know you are certainly more familiar with their story uh, than I am. But you, you are then able to achieve what you set out to achieve in a sense, which is to get favorable enough terms that you can get more inventory. Yeah. All right. What happens then? So you have more product on the way. What, what were some of the best decisions that you guys made from that point on? Like, what were some of the critical decisions, right? Because a lot of people try to sell products online, whether they're physical or digital. And most of them go into it unprepared. Most of them do not learn from their mistakes. Uh, many of them do not apply any type of rigor to their analytics or uh, minding of very basic things. And that's, keep in mind, coming from me, and I am com- about as innumerate as you can possibly be. I mean, I, I chose my university based on a lack of math requirements, or I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not exactly a quant, and, but very basic, like simple arithmetic and not fooling yourself that like two customer reviews that say X is cool means that definitively across the board, everyone thinks X that's is cool. That's all you need. Right. Yeah. Really basic <laughs> that's stuff. All you need. Super basic. Uh, so what we're, but you guys have done very well. You have a very steep trajectory on sales, you're launching new products. So you, at this point, you have the support back, right? And you have more units coming in. What were some of the smartest decisions that you guys made, or worst decisions? They're both both are important in sort of the months that followed. One of the key decisions, and then Santiago, you can add to that. I'll dive into the first one was to focus, and we're big believers in the Pareto principle in honing in on what's working and keeping on that and getting better at that and not getting distracted, removing distractions. And Ben, you, you had mentioned to me your fans of the four-hour work week. Was that what made you think along those lines? Absolutely. I mean, Tim, you mentioned it uh, in the four-hour work week. Focus and removing distractions has definitely been one of the key decisions, even if it was an unknown decision. Mm-hmm. So an un, un unseen so to say because mm-hmm. you neglect something you you don't right. see the, right. the, the thing you neglected um so what that meant in, in this particular case was we had many options um to expand into different channels say walmart.com jet.com even ebay where we could figure it out but one of the key decisions we did was to focus in and hone in on amazon in growing both our expertise as well as our sales on that platform. Um, and unknowingly, one of the effects that had is the way Amazon works um, from a very high level is the more sales you have, the more sales you have. So it's a snowball or a cumulative um, advantage, attribution, however you want to call it, um, in that Amazon ultimately cares about transactions on their site. So the more transactions you have on their site, the more they like you, and what the more they like you means is they rank you higher, they give you access to advertisement, etc., to a whole bunch of uh, other benefits based off of that. So, so you, you classified those other sites then as distractions, it sounds like. Yes. And so we, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are big idols of ours. Um, and Warren Buffett mentions or one of his concepts remo- in, in, in distractions and focus is there are 20 things you want to do right now. We're we're really burning to do, say for us, that was expanding to other channels like Walmart. But you have to scrap them all and focus on the one thing 
that ultimately will push you forward. And real distractions are things you're dying to do. So we applied that in our case and, and kept on focusing on Amazon. I think that was crucial. And does us. one of you rein the other in? I mean, are, is, is one of you better at narrowing the focus? Or do you both do that for each other? It's both for each other. And I think there's a lot of value in a partnership in particularly that point, because one can easily lose track and, and get distracted oneself. But having kind of a, a second pair of eyes is definitely where two plus two is way greater than four in that mm -hmm. sense. You mentioned, you, you guys have mentioned, well, before we started recording and also now, Warren Buffett and Munger. Uh, why are, the, aside from, yes, they're very successful investors. That's, that's great. Uh, and they're certainly uh, among the best the world has ever seen. But beyond that, uh, or maybe in addition to that, like wh why are these two so interesting to you guys? And when you say we idolize them, that's great. But does that mean you study them? And if you study them, how do you study them? That's a good question. Um, we, I think what we admire the most out of them is the ability to or the constant pursuit of truth and rationality is how do we, how do we really understand the reality and keep emotion and irrationality out of it as much as possible? They even admit there's no such thing as perfection in, in that, um, but they're always striving to do that. Um, so the most the, the most studying we do is both on on what they have to say. I think our our favorite um, one of my favorite pieces of Charlie Munger's speech in Harvard. I think. In 19, uh, you can look it up on YouTube, Charlie Munger, Harvard. Yeah, if you just look up Charlie Munger commencement. Commencement. I, I think it's also in uh, Poor Charlie's Almanac. In the newer editions. Mm -hmm. What they have to say, um, pretty much any insight into their lives. I know they're, they're usually pretty private, but um, there's there's plenty of content out there for free that you can you can you can see. Um, but it's that pursuit of of being rational and staying down to earth and keeping emotions out of things. Um, that help has helped us both in in, per, in our personal lives and in our relationship as as co-founders, as in our ability to dissect the business and focus on the few things that actually move the needle. Uh, ben, what about you? And as it relates to the, that dynamic duo, are there any resources that you would recommend? Or poor Charlie's Almanac is definitely there. I think there's another book from Darwin to Munger. Uh, yep. Peter Bevelin. Yeah. Uh, Seeking Wisdom, I think, is the title. Seeking and Wisdom. And then from uh, yeah, Darwin to Munger, or Munger to Darwin, yeah. is also a really good collection. And then the speeches on YouTube. Um, I think Munger has one at USC. Um, yeah. It's like a commencement speech, which is very valuable. And I, I also would recommend to folks who may not explicitly have an interest in what you think of as investing, which is picking stocks, let's just say, to read the annual letters to Berkshire Hathaway shareholders by Buffett. There are collections of these letters and it will help you to hone or at the very least test your own thinking so that you become clear or more clear about how you are reaching your conclusions, which yeah. translates to better investment of time, energy, attention, capital, uh, which certainly transfers to just about everything. All right. So getting back to the main story, the, the, the storyline that we've been, we've been traveling along here. Uh, 
when did you begin to expand outside of your first product and how did you make how did you make that decision so back to when i when i mentioned that we took a time a pause to understand what had worked um we understood again it was the our approach to product development um how we took kind of our cs background to developing the best backbone product and may and I, said, you know i'm going to yeah. interrupt you because i'm being a jerk uh but also because I, I want to. Uh, we are gonna. We're definitely gonna get to the expansion of product line, but I realized maybe we skipped a chapter really early, which was before you ordered your product and you were getting feedback from people at Dartmouth. What did that look like? Because this is really hands-on. It's something people can do with communities around them. How did you elicit feedback in the very early days? Because you guys are systems thinkers, right? So you're not gonna be like, "Hey, do you like it?" And they're like, "Yeah, I like it." You're like, "Okay, great. Let's go buy a container full of." <laughs> Um, product no you're not going to do that so what did you do look bad no limited feedback is better than no feedback we we took it with a big grain of salt we went through we lined up a whole bunch of people and say look withdraw yourself from the product as much as you can and say what do you think of this use it for a few hours we did a couple of different tests um one of us like use it for a few hours and and right beforehand we would ask them how much pain are you in right now and then how much pain are you in after how statistically significant was that or how valid it is probably it isn't very valid. Um, but then we reached out to the, um, the CEO of the Dartmouth Hitchcock. He was nice enough. He, all his background is on back pain. He was nice enough to meet with us and, and give us his opinion on, on his best practices. But again, that was, that was not the pillar or the core of how the product was developed because ultimately our biggest effort uh, expert is the customer and their behavior, the consumer behavior. Um, so we took that with a bit of a grain of salt, took it as a guiding reference, but it was how can we get to the market as quickly as we can? And that's when the true learning started. Mm -hmm. What were things that you modified in the product? I don't think we touched upon this yet. Like, so the support of background. I mean, you, that was like your undergrad and master's degrees f setting you up for the later products, I would assume, in a lot of respects, right? So what were some of the early changes that you made to the product and, that were important in retrospect and why? Yeah, so we actually worked on on three products initially. Um, they they launched in a bit of a, a different timing, but the three were the brace, the, the the pillow, and the lumbar support. All of those were supporting back products. Um, I'll give you the example of the of the pillow because it's the most substantial or or clear um, changes that we did. So we started looking at again approach what are, what do other pillows are doing. We knew that the pillow. Let me backtrack. So there's three core points in your life where you're when you have back pain um, where you're not moving um, and when you're in poor posture it's when you're sleeping usually when you're commuting if you commute by car like the majority of the people uh, in the u.s and um, when you're sitting at work so our customers kept coming back to us for those kind of three products so what we we set up we set off to do a pillow um, and we understood started looking at different types of pillows understood that memory foam was the best material again looking at the trends um, what what material has gotten the best feedback in terms of solving the issue, which is back pain? That was by far memory foam. Um, and there were different densities of it. So that's when Ben came in and he was like, well, but some people say too hard, too soft. What is the, how can we pinpoint the, 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 the it to the optimal, <laughs> optimal density? So we pinpointed we? to the optimal density. <laughs> and then, and then started, once it started selling, we started getting feedback from the customer saying, clear, clear trend saying, um, look, the, the memory foam is great, but it retains a lot of heat. Um, and it's making our faces really itchy. Within two to three days, we're not really using the product. I'm you know, throwing it to the side and using my normal pillow. Uh, so we were saying, how can, we, um, how can we make this 
cooler or mm-hmm. solve this issue that there was a literally clear, cooler uh, literally cooler <laughs> yeah. uh, so we we started looking at other industries and and how had memory so foam products before you're not trying to reinvent the wheel just trying to solve the issue the simplest way possible um found that the, we could add a little thin layer of cool gel on top and then even pinpoint it down to what what would the what was the 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 the, the width of that layer how how big would you want it to make it and and added that specific layer um, to the product, make that change, and within as soon as that product hit the market, it became the best-selling pillow in all of the UK marketplace. Um, it actually became the best-selling pillow in all of home and kitchen as a category for a few days. Sante, um, can I just stop you for a second? How, yeah. how did you know about the materials? This seems like it would be totally alien to most of us. We we didn't. So that was that was what we did right. The 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 our own ignorance pushed us to take the right approach and is taking the customer as the ultimate designer. So. We said, look, we don't know what a memory foam is, so let's buy all the memory foam pillows um, and let's see which ones have the best feedback on on the specific memory foam as the the enabler to solve the problem. So you looked at their like yeah. the comments on Amazon about those pillows and exactly. then you extrapolated. And off Amazon, again, same approach. Or, it was where, where, just iterating on the same thing that we'd approach. done right. Okay. Um, and then we literally took a sample out of the memory foam, sent it to our supplier and say, can you make it out of this memory foam? They examined it. They said, this is the type of density. This is the color. This is exactly how we're going to do it. Um, it was very systematic. For us, if we, if we couldn't do it again with any product, we, we wouldn't even do it. Even if we thought that we could uh, input our own opinions into it and make it different, we said, that is not iterable. Let's not do it that way. Question on manufacture. I don't think I asked. So there are a million and one manufacturers out there. Yeah, and for every one good story I hear, I hear twenty awful stories. How did you end up? And you don't have to mention the specific manufacturer, but how did you pick them? And did you have to? Did you make mistakes in the beginning and have to replace your manufacturer? How did you go about vetting and selecting who you ended up selecting? So overall, the approach we took was let's put in the upfront work in the vetting because that will make our lives down the line way easier. Yeah. Um, instead of having to deal with a lot of issues, quality insurance, etc. Um, so Santiago already mentioned, we initially reached out via Alibaba to around, again, very numeric driven approach to, to finding a supplier, reached out to, I think, around 30 or 40 different suppliers, all within the categories of the products through Alibaba, um, I think we also looked at 1688.com, which is a, another comparable site. Um, and within a- Alibaba, you also have certain metrics. There's a gold star rating. There's metrics on how long they've been on the platform for. And even Alibaba, I guess, given to their own history, has instituted quality checks from within um, of their own people or employees going to the factories, taking photos, verifying all the certifications are accurate, etc. So that was a good, a good ground basis to work off. Um, we sp- a lot of the vetting came from speaking with the, the manufacturers themselves in how professional um, they would behave and how effectively they would communicate um, what companies under non-disclosure, but what type of companies, what size of companies they'd worked with in the past, um, example products 
they've worked and, and produced themselves in the past. So many different variables we looked at um, to vet them. And ultimately like a checklist where they had to tick off different different boxes. What were some of the questions you asked on the phone? And at what, so you have 30 to 40 you yeah. reach out to. How many of those would you say you guys called? Well, we contacted all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like a marketing funnel, right? Yeah. You have a certain dropout and then we obviously cut off a per- certain percentage because it's a huge time investment on our end to speak with 50 different people simultaneously. Um, so like we had an initial cutoff in terms of poor communication and that was indicated by, say, poor English, um, their, some certifications they could not hold up, etc. Right. Um, Meaning they couldn't provide certificates to show you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then, so that was a big cutoff. Then another step in the funnel was actually having a lawyer go over the um, certifications and counter-checking them that they were accurate and not fake. There's basic services or, or basic lawyers who can do that for 100, 200 bucks. Um, so that was another stage. In How the did f- you find the lawyers? Google search. Got it. Yeah. And those were based in the U.S.? Based Those elsewhere. were based in Europe, actually. Based in Europe, yeah. got it. But the lawyer can be from anywhere because these organizations are global, mm-hmm. the, the certification. What do you search on Google for someone like that? What might you search? Yeah, um, so it depends, again, on, on the category of product you're manufacturing. Um, a general good certification to have is good manufacturing practice. GMP, yeah. GMP. So you can look up for GMP, certificate, lawyer, approval, uh, verification, et cetera, and you'll get a whole bunch Got of it. results. All right. and, very practical again. Mm-hmm. And were you going to your classes at this time? How, how did you actually find time to do all of this? Yeah, and that's a great question. Going back to far work week, that's another point where that was very influential to us because we had limited time we obviously there was attendance at class and we had to do labs etc which took up a lot of time so the time we had available we had to use very focusedly and like again Pareto principle focusing on the few things that matter um and, and let me just pause you for one second so Pareto principle for people who are not familiar with that term is often also called the 80 20 principle and in very very simple terms there's a lot of nuance to it but it the, the idea or the premise being, and it's more of a conceptual framework, but it ends up manifesting pretty accurately in a lot of different areas, whether it's agriculture or looking at profit per customer or any you know, headache per supplier, <laughs> that, that 80% of, say, in the case of profit, like 80% of the profit that you generate will be produced by 20% of your products, 20% of your customers. And doing that type of analysis to identify the really, really good and also the really, really bad so you can make more informed decisions. And 80-20, it doesn't mean, it doesn't have to add up to 100, right? It could be the, <laughs> yeah. the 95-5 principle where 5% produce 95% of your headache with your accounts receivable, right? I mean, it could be any number of things like that. But that's, that's the, yeah. named after Vilfredo Pareto. Um, so... Sorry to interrupt, but yeah, so you've got your labs, you've got your classes, you have limited time, so you're really having to focus on the things that, that matter. Exactly. And a funny note, we've actually seen 
instances where people who dedicate full time, say, to to a business or to their entrepreneurial pursuits, end up being less effective than people who are only pursuing it part time, just because they get distracted, they get lost, they don't use their time effectively, um, and ultimately the people who say have a full time job or, or are in college can use the the limited time they have available on the things that matter again, power law distribution. Um, and also use them effectively focused, uh, not being on the phone, uh, seeing all the messages from, from, from the wife, from the partner, from, from work, etc. Um, so I think, again, that we use that from the four work week, the concept of focusing in on what matters, systematizing the rest. Um, and that's been very, very influential for us. Yeah, it's, it's true for, I mean, a lot of folks, which is in part why, whether it's in the four hour work week or outside of that, I often talk about the 80, 20 principle or Pareto principle being used in tandem with Parkinson's law and Parkinson's law is a semi, uh, it, it was initially written about in more of a, a humorous satire like context, but the applications are really practical. So the, the, I, the, the, the premise of the Parkinson's law is that a task will will swell in complexity to fill the time that you allot it. Right? So the more time you have for something, the more complicated you will be uh, inclined to make it. And this is also not just within entrepreneurship, but uh, even in writing. I mean, you have someone like, I think, Khalid Hosseini, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but who wrote The Kite Runner, who was, a, I believe, a, a full-time physician at the time. So he had to use tiny chunks of time here and there to really focus. It was not an option not to focus because his time was so limited. So it can be a, a very useful forcing function. And the reason I mentioned that is that a lot of people who, there are many people, myself included, I do this all the time too. So it's, it's a matter of conditioning yourself to use this lens, but it's, it's very easy to look at a perceived lack of time as a weakness. But if you view it instead as a forcing function where when you focus, you have to focus. You cannot get away with checking social media every five minutes and get anything done. Uh, then it can be a real asset. So you guys were using, what, nights, weekends? When were, you, when were you actually finding the time? Or was it in separate chunks? So first thing we said is let's apply the 2080 to the classes. So what are the, the things that we actually have to do to get you know, still get our good grades, but, uh, but not necessarily spend 100% of the time that normally people would spend. And then the time that was opened by that, then say, no, we have this little bit of time. What can we do for the business and that 20 to produce the 80% of the results? And then note on, on the 2080 is sometimes, so it's really easy to identify, say, when you're uh, not doing the 20 of the 80, uh, say, with social media or with wasting your time. But often it's even harder to identify it when you're doing the things that seem productive. Right. When you're saying, okay, I'm going to spend, you spend four hours um, trying to get the, the image perfect. Right. And it's, that, that often is just as bad as spending those four hours on social media. So it's harder to identify that and always be, be aware of like, and one, one big concept or one big book that, that has helped us fight through that has been the the, um, the one thing mm -hmm. um, by Gary Keller. He's actually Gary in Austin. Keller. Gary Keller. Yeah. Yeah. Another local. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's huge, been, huge real estate empire for people who don't know the name. Yeah. Gigantic. Yeah. So we, 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 we use that concept and we combine the carving out of the classes versus the carving out of the business, the carving out that 80% that doesn't make much of a difference. 
Um, and that's how we made time for it. And we had we had time. I mean, we do work hard. We work pretty much all day, all day of the week, every day of the week. But uh, we we do have time for for leisure to, um, you know, space out the mind and, and do things that we also find fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, so two two quick notes on that. And then we're going to come back to introducing new products. So I wanted to hit the manufacturing, and then we we've we've taken a slight side road, not a not a not a divergence because it's all <laughs> convergence. Uh, but the two things I wanted to mention are number one that uh, well, I suppose it's really just one thing, and that is that the less people are thinking to themselves, wait a second. This is the four-hour workweek guy, and these two just said they work all the time. <laughs> How does he reconcile those two? Uh, it's actually really easy because the, the, the title is more of a, a metaphor, and the case studies within the book even are very, very, very different. And uh, the, the objective is to maximize your practical output per hour. And then if you want to build, say, a business that covers your expenses and helps you put your kids through school. And then you spend the rest of your time exploring other passions. That's one path. If you want to build like you guys are doing right now, an eight figure, nine figure business, uh, that is another path, right? But the tools you would use 80, 20 Pareto, et cetera, are all, it's the same toolkit applied to a different project. Uh, so products, you started not with one, you started with three. And how did you then go from the initial three to expanding and was that always the plan so no initially the plan was solve our own issue then it was getting those those products into the market um but what happened is those people kept coming back to us and saying okay so cool i have these products what else i'm still getting back pain in this and this other area um in my life or do you have a solution for this or i'm um, this solves my lower back pain but what about my upper back pain so start listening to that as much as we could and um, started seeing how can we help our customers for longer um and and and, and for mo- with more things um again really cs approach data driven started understanding uh you know researching a lot of the keyword um what are the best selling products in terms of back pain how can we add value created a list of of candidate products that we were going to launch and said, we're going to launch another 22 uh, into the market. How did, okay. So you're data driven. Okay. How did you decide on 22? Um, it was what we, it was a combination of what we thought we could get out of payment terms from our suppliers versus the profits that we had originally made. Cause we were reinvesting hundred percent of everything. Got um, it. So for growth purposes, you could have, the max number you could afford to launch based on the assumptions you had, which were grounded in your data you had thus far was 22. Like if you launched 30, you were really kind of playing more Russian roulette with potential finances. We were potentially going to run out of stock. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Are there any areas of the decision-making on the products where emotion intervenes? You guys seem like you're naturally very good at applying rules and discipline, but do you ever just say, I just really love this product or do you not allow that when you're making the decisions? We think we don't allow it. I, I hope we don't. <laughs> we def- um, yeah. But emotion is always there. Um, yeah. we, we try to, we try to make it as numerical as possible and as rational, but you, there's always something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no perfection, but, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, we decided to launch the 20, 22 was also going to be interesting because it was going to force us to do it in a systematic way. Mm-hmm. We only had a few hours a week from our, from our school and we, we would need to develop 22 products. So everything needed to be formulaic and systematic. Um, 
so that was when we we started laying the groundwork for the systems that we currently have in place um, for for the big launch that we'll talk about after the, the 120. Um, uh, so yeah, that's how we selected the products and then replicated the same the same cycle that we'd done for those initial first and, and, and three to those 22 is what are the other competitors doing? Uh, what are they doing wrong? What are they doing right? What do the people want? Um, and how can we get it all together in a single product? And how can we get it to market as quickly as possible? So we set ourselves a deadline of three months from the point we decided to the point that's going to be selling. And that includes the shipping. Three months for 22 products. Yeah. And that includes shipping by sea, which is a month uh, to Europe and, and about a month to manufacture. So we only had a month to actually get it all ready to order okay so now the two of you guys clearly very smart you're uh you're very analytical and just before i forget quick pause if you guys find yourselves getting really fatigued and worn down by the business you should launch something just for shits and giggles uh, <laughs> no, no seriously seriously i've done that just to like resuscitate my enthusiasm so that for instance you can, i'm just envisioning in my head you could have some type of ridiculous like rainbow unicorn slippers that you you engineer so that every time someone buys one of your products that's like customers also buy uh, just to inject a little bit of fun uh, could, could, could could be worth it uh, but the uh, where was I going with that? I got off off track with Rainbow with Slippers unicorns. by Tim Ferriss. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Signature series. Uh, so you 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 guys are well educated, smart. You're sort of in your professional sports prime in a way, right? Like you guys have a lot of energetic resources, and if you have to just live on like Red Bull and ramen, you can do that. Uh, but that sounds like a task you guys can't do by yourselves, and it also sounds like a task that would be very hard to script. Because, I mean, God forbid, you're scripting the copy. I could see some really, <laughs> really ridiculous stuff coming out. Uh, Don't give Ben ideas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so do, so do, you, do you have, did you have and do you have help? And if so, what does that look like? Okay, so we, we scaled the team. Originally, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, with Dartmouth, but it's pretty much a little town in the middle of snow. Yeah. Uh, so th- there's really not much room to hire full-time people besides that we were running, like we were still in school. Um, so we, we went to a platform like Upwork and there's, there's many up like them out there and start looking for freelancers um, that would help us execute some of these tasks. And what we actually were surprised to find is the, the quality and the level of the people in those platforms. They're very, very smart people, very educated. So you mentioned Upwork. Any others yeah. that really come to mind for you? For the most part, we use Upwork. There's Freelancer.com, yeah. mm-hmm. FreeUp. Mm-hmm. We've mostly stuck with uh, Upwork. With Upwork, Got yeah. it. Okay. Um, so so we, we were completely surprised by the quality and the, the level of, of specialty of the people um, on those platforms. And we started hiring remote people that would dedicate one or two hours of their day. Um, they usually had other clients as well that would do a very specific task. So say copywriting, we would hire a copywriter in each of the languages. Here's um, our 20 point checklist. Right. Follow this. Create or SOPs. Or, yeah, or improve it. Created the SOPs. Um, SOP. Yeah, SOP, to, standard operating procedures, yeah, a just, fancy word just, for yeah. checklist. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, are you communicating with them via email, Slack, something else? What Created a Slack for all of us. Mm-hmm. Everyone's in there. Um, facilitates a lot of the things. And that's how we start running those mm-hmm. processes. And, and now, much like with the manufacturers, on any job board or freelancer 
community, there are going to be uh, some amazing people and there are also going to be some clowns. So how do you guys qualify or disqualify people really quickly? Yeah. Great question. <laughs> that's our biggest question. Yeah, <laughs> that's a very big question to which we don't have a, a full answer, but it's our most pressing question. Mm -hmm. um, we took a similar approach to the copywriting initially, so same as those first 30 days. Try to do as much research as possible, looking at companies who do hiring and, and especially the selection part uh, correctly. So we... A really good book is the Who interview. Uh, yeah, that is. Yeah, Who is a great. It's a very a really good, good process. Good. It's, it's basically a streamlined, shorter version of top grading. Exactly. Which a lot of my startups, which are venture backed, but same same. I mean, the best of them still operate with very similar metrics and mentality. Yeah, yeah. Who Who is a very good book. Another one called Work Rules, which is by Laszlo Bock. Mm -hmm. um, it's on Google's inside how they apply how they go about hiring and selecting candidates um, mm -hmm. and, and some other really interesting thoughts. My whole library at home, I have around 10 books, I think, um, just dedicated to hiring um, mm. and, and selecting people. So it's a very important issue. to us. So what have you found to be, I know you don't have a perfect answer, and yeah. maybe that doesn't exist, but what are things that you have implemented that you found helpful for qualifying or disqualifying people quickly? Absolutely. So based on the research we've done, similar processes with the 20 point uh, copywriting formula with interviewing we found a few key principles which are the main ones are structured interviewing is better so if you incorporate some structure to your interviewing process that will give you on average better results over the long run so and what structured interviewing means you have a multi-step process um, so that can mean a phone screen and then an, a cultural interview where you assess the culture and then a reference call and then maybe a work sample. Um, and who does a good job of, that's one example, but they provide that structure. Yes, exactly. We actually base ourselves off the process in who. Um, so that's a key principle. And also having the interview questions predefined because otherwise what happens is candidates tell their own story and cater it to what you want to hear and our echo chambers in a sense of what you've told them about the position or what they read on the job description. Um, whereas, it also makes it very difficult to compare candidate to candidate if you have different exactly. interviews. Exactly. Um, so having those questions predefined and then there are certain questions for the areas you want to assess which are most likely to yield a better assessment than other questions. Having those predefined and also stating beforehand, this is what a good answer looks like, this is what a bad answer looks like, this is what a mediocre answer looks like, that is very helpful in, in getting some rigor into the, into the selection process to avoid just going for people who you like, who you relate with, who have similar backgrounds than you, etc. Um, secondly, we found that reference calls and heavy referencing so that means at least probably three to four references and then asking those references to provide another reference which is very important uh because of course people who <laughs> job applicants who provide you references are banking on the fact that those references are going to give positive reviews yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's ways to frame questions to try to correct for that as well what would be an example of that um so for example 
we had a candidate where that we were trying to test out for the for his or her work ethic. Um, and because obviously, if you if you, if you ask somebody do you work hard, they always see they're always going to say yes, and regardless of how you ask that question. Yeah. So the best way is to see how others assess their work ethic. Uh, but if they're counting on the reference to give a good reference, they they won't tell you. Yeah, he has a. He, he, of course, he has a good work ethic. So the way we've we've done a couple, we obviously won't say all the tricks, but one of the tricks is that we we go up to the reference and say, um, "Look, say the candidate A, like we'll call him Jim. Hey, look, Jim said sometimes he struggles to stay motivated and and to work really long nights. Um, what what are your thoughts on that?" Which Jim has not said, right? Right. <laughs> and, and so so then so, so then so then you based on their reaction because if somebody is really really hardworking, they'll say. What gym? Really? Gym is that's never, strange. That's yeah. weird. They've they've always been. You know, they'll react that way. Whereas if they're actually not, yeah, Jim has been struggling. But look, it's just because the boss is, and they'll come up with a reason to kind of save him. Yeah. Uh, but then it clearly shows. Those are a few ways that you can kind of angle the question. Yeah. Another one which uh, a friend of mine told me I thought was quite clever, which applies in the U.S. Uh, and there's some legal restrictions and guidelines around this kind of thing uh, because m- many people will be terrified to say anything that might jeopardize the person's hiring for legal reasons and so one way to get around that is to if you if you ensure that you send people an email so you don't get them on the phone you either leave a voicemail or send them an email which is i'm interviewing so and so for a potential position i would love to know how much you would recommend them no need to reply unless it is like an eight or higher Right, mm. and then they have plausible deniability, and they can always say, "I never got it." Yeah. But and you have to make sure you have a, a sample size that's significant enough, or you know that these people are in contact so that that works, uh, and, and you don't, you don't get a false negative, uh, if that makes sense. But that would be another approach in terms of quick vetting. I'll give one one more up uh, another tactic that was shared with uh, with me by. Uh, friend who's uh, many multiple time New York Times bestselling author and uh, runs a number of businesses and hires a lot of contractors. And what he'll do is he'll have some type of, he'll start with a, a work test, right? He'll, he'll start with a, a test of some type that has a very fast turnaround. It's like 48 hours. This needs to be done. And they, the first step is very often to respond with certain types of information, but at the very end of the work task, it will say, do not reply via message or email. Like call this phone number and leave a message with your answer. And it's, it's, it has to be in a larger context that it's easy to miss. And he's testing for attention to detail and doing things on time. That's basically his first hurdle. Right? And it immediately screens out 99% of the people <laughs> uh, who do just do not pay attention. All right. So how many, how many folks do you have helping you at the moment? So we use the, the freelancer approach. By the way, mm-hmm. one last thing I want to add to that. Work samples are the biggest in, indicator to, to job success. So if you can make somebody an upward clear way or easy way to to, to filter people out and say, hey, this is what I need to do. Just do a, a shorter version of whatever they need to do. Easiest way to, to clear out through people. But anyway. Really important note. Uh-huh. There's some really good resources on YouTube. Um, I think it's Y Combin- Combinator. Y and Combinator. Mm-hmm. Y Combinator and Stanford. Or Y Combinator taught a class at Stanford. And there's some really good lectures there on team building there's one with Vinod Kosla from mm-hmm. Kosla Ventures. He's great on hiring. He believes hiring is the one thing 
to, to scale. And there's another lecturer with, I think his name is Ben Silberman. Uh, uh, Silberman of Pinterest. Of Pinterest and the two Stripe co-founders. Yeah, the Collison brothers. Yeah, and they also talk about hiring, team building, incredible value right there. So I recommend that to anyone who, who's looking to hire or vet people. Great. It's been of great value. Yeah, that's that's a tremendous series of classes. I think they may have made some of them into podcasts as well, so people can yeah, check it out. I'll, I'll put all these in the show notes for everybody. Uh, so you were, yeah. you were going to so say... So I was saying that... Um, so I was saying, yeah, so we started hiring freelancers, um, all from, from the college dorm, and saying um, to, div- to work out through those little pieces of the system, um, compiled everything in an Excel sheet, and everyone knew what needed to be done, and within a month, those 22 products uh, were live. Um, and we, we've kept those people in place. There are about 26 right now. They're 26 freelancers. Freelancers. Um, some of which we only use, say, on an on-demand basis. So we don't have a copywriter sitting along doing copy all day. It's just when we launch a new product, they might come in. But there's about 12 to 14 that are pretty much every day running the day-to-day systems of, of, of our company. Um, so that's how we launched the 22 products. They were really successful as soon as they... They hit the market. We started iterating on them, and still to this day, we iterate on them and try to make them better. Um, have constant talks about how can we improve those twenty-two. Um, and took a step back uh, and said, by then we were already on 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 track to the to the eight figures, so about the ten million. Um, and and we said, look, we we're, we've done something right. Uh, we've scaled it up, uh, and 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 we start learning a bit more about how the bigger market and the consumer packed goods and just packaged goods in general worked. Um, and so Ben and I researched into how CPG companies were doing their development. Again, acknowledging that our key, key component of success was our ability to, to, to use data as the development uh, guideliners, the, the North mm-hmm. Star. And CPG for folks is consumer packaged goods, which yeah. can range from protein bars to... Shampoo. Shampoo to <laughs> just about anything. Think, think Procter & Gamble. Or any of these large, large brands. Exactly. So we start learning how they were doing a lot of the development, um, not any in specific, just in general. But they were doing a lot of the product development. It, it was usually not very data driven. They would they would have focus groups that were not statistically significant, and there was not real consumer behavior or purchasing intent. Um, and and they really didn't. The reason why we discovered they they weren't really putting a lot of effort into the development is because they have all the leverage from all the household brands. Um, that they use then to push new products into the market and eventually hopefully become a household brand. So they have a lot of leverage into the distributors and the retailers. Um, so there's no incentive there. Uh, but the digital era is allowing us to change that. And and that's what we've been doing with Supporty Back without really knowing it, is going straight to the customer and saying, look, we, we can make it better. What can we do better about this product? And, and how can we make that um, make a better product for you? So we said, can we replicate that approach across the bigger the bigger industries, such as beauty and skincare, and and the pet supplies, and pet food, and baby, and even nutrition. Um, so, so Ben and I said, look, if we want to get to that point, we obviously need to have people that have been there, done that, uh, sort of as professors, come in and, and and tell us how to scale to that point. So, um, that's when we that's when we kind of decided to take a big turn in life and 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 put the studies on hold and come here to Austin um, and build what we call the exec team or, or the people um, above, uh, above us even that'll help us scale to that, to that portion. And one thing that 
folks might not realize, and I didn't know this until I actually got to Austin, is that some of the best CPG entrepreneurs and investors in the country, maybe in the world, are here in Austin. And uh, a lot of that is thanks to a university known as Whole Foods, uh, <laughs> uh, because the, the alumni and former execs and so on, uh, and serial entrepreneurs who have built, say, consumables companies, right? Whether that's like Epic Bar or uh, Deep Eddy Vodka or whatever you might find, tend to stay in the area. And uh, so you have this very dense network of people who really understand how to build uh, CPG companies, whether that's cold brew coffee or, you know, the shampoo or, uh, gluten-free tortillas or fill in the blank. <laughs> yeah. there, there are many, many examples here. Yes. And I had no idea, uh, before I got here. Uh, so are you guys looking to build or buy or both? So, right. Meaning, yeah. are you looking to build all these brands, which you guys have, have shown you can do, or are you looking to buy or acquire in some fashion, companies or products how are you guys thinking about that so we don't see it as mutually exclusive sure we are very good at ramping a brand up from scratch and we've done that and are doing that many times over now with the additional products um and then creating a longer term higher growth curve because of our product development process etc um so acquiring right now at an early like an early stage brand or company that would fit our portfolio does not currently justify the premium we would pay for that. Right. However, once these other brands are also up and at the same level as Polybag and, and, and growing, it can it's definitely within our trajectory to look at other brands we can bring in that fit strategically with our current brand portfolio. And then to bring them in, to roll them up, to leverage any any complementary products, uh, audiences, etc. So it's definitely mm -hmm. definitely consideration. We've been speaking with other back pain brands already for supporty back. Um, yeah, so it's within the trajectory from the early stage. It doesn't justify the pr the price premium. Mm -hmm. And they're also, I should say. Uh there are options C, D, and E, and so on. Not just 100% build or 100% buy. Yeah. Right? For instance, uh, there are almost infinite number of ways you can structure an acquisition where you might have, not that you necessarily want to get into exchanges of equity, but you could have an equity component where you're giving a piece of the company as opposed to upfront cash, you could avoid that or in combination with that have a very elaborate earnout clauses where people are, they're getting paid for their brand, but only after they've been assimilated and proven that they can transport their skills and, and or perhaps their customer base and so on to the portfolio products. So there are ways to do it where you can mitigate against the upfront costs, but it is, Fascinating world that uh, that we won't get into just <laughs> yeah. yet today. But I, but I, what I, what I want to ask you guys because we're going to wrap up in, in just a little bit here is, among other things, why? So what I mean by that is a, a different way to phrase that would be what for. Uh, what I mean by that is you're growing. You're you are going to be hopefully accelerating growth 
based on your current enthusiasm for it, which seems very palpable. Where do you want this to be in three or five years? Like, what are you guys trying to do? And, uh, yeah. And, and, uh, and I might, I might stress test your answer a little bit. So we'll, we'll see, but yeah, what, like, what, do you, what, do you, what do you guys try? What do you guys try to do? And why is it worth all the time and energy and so on that you're putting into it? So, so I'll start with the why. Um, I think, I think Ben and I have both really big drive for, for delivering value. And I know this sounds a bit, a bit abstract, but I think the role of an entrepreneur in the world is to find ways to do things better or more efficiently and then try to do that as many times over with the help of other people. Um, so that's something that's really driving us. And when we find a way to do things better, it's like, how can we do more of it? And it becomes almost like a drug into like, okay, we found a better way to do better products. Um, and we see that direct impact in the people that we're giving them. So the back pain products, people go back and say, look, it actually helped. Um, and when it becomes to, you know, the, the, the few products that we tested in the other industries, like this product is much better than the one I had. Uh, and that fuels a lot of what we do. Um, now, where does that, how does that tie into the company or where we want to go? Is again, all we're doing is replicating that first initial back pain product that we're doing. It's the same concept is how can we deliver a better product, a better packaged good to a customer? And I think that the big companies have done it a specific way and that way is changing and it's gotten better with digital. So we want Benny Tago Group to become the new, I hate the word conglomerate, but the new group of brands or a new group of, or a new accelerator for products, um, a, a launch platform for new and better products for customers around the world, um, where we actually give them a voice and that is reflected in the quality of the products that they're, they're getting. That's the ultimate vision. Um, how does that look like in mm -hmm. terms of size? Um, I have no idea. How does that look like in terms of structure? I have no idea. As long as our core focus or the, or the way we lead our actions is how can we do that initial value delivery that we proved with our supportive act back in our college dorms? How can we deliver that same value many, many, many times over. So we're doing it 120 times. Hopefully we'll do it more and more times over. But obviously it's not just the one time that you launch it is how can we iterate it many, many, many times over. Mm -hmm. Does that answer a bit? It does. <laughs> it does. It does. I'm curious to, I should have had you in separate rooms. So, <laughs> so. It's a bit abstract. Yeah. And then a lot of the intrinsic motivation mm -hmm. for, and I, I, I speak, I, I think both on, on behalf of Santiago and myself, comes from learning and actually going back to, to computer science, just solving problems. Yeah, I think part of what, I mean, I barely know you guys, of course, but I mean, part of what seems just, I'm using something very non-quantitative right now, which is just like my, my intuitive feel of you guys, <laughs> is that you get a real high from creating the recipe and seeing if you can replicate. Yeah, yes. Right? Like, did we get it right? It's the same feeling you get when you debug a program and yeah. it works and you're yeah. like, boom, yeah. now I can do the same operation a billion times. Yeah. yeah. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly that. And the growth, the personal growth, working on new challenges every day, um, figuring out solutions to complex problems like hiring. How do we best approach that? What are best practices? How about product development? Just constantly learning, finding new problems to solve, mm -hmm. um, even if the problems on a day-to-day -day basis breaking them down making them small solving reverse engineering mm -hmm. yeah it's just and learning from the people that work from us as well they mm -hmm. yes. they're so good at what they do uh because they they've been hyper focused and hyper specialized that it's almost like a classroom 
uh, you know, a lot of people say like, oh, but then, you know, you're, you're in pause in, in school. Like, how does it feel to not continue to learn? It was like, it's completely the opposite. We've continued to learn. It's like having a teacher work with you every day um, from which you can learn a lot. So that is also a big driving force yeah. of why we want to keep going. Who are some of the entrepreneurs or leaders uh, you guys most look up to or think about modeling or studying? Let's start with you. Ah, uh, you got me off base. It, it depends <laughs> on what. So I, I don't you have can, a single, You can pick the context. If, if, I, if I have to choose one, I obviously choose the, the Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett because they're... But yeah, if I had to choose an you entrepreneur... Know, you can choose as many as you like. There's no limit. Um, it, dep- it depends for what. There's, there's people that are, that are really good at, the, at hiring. There are people that are... Like who? <sighs> I want names. Vinod Kosla, Ben Silverman, um, Paul English, co-founder of Kayak... Um, Brian Goldberg, who's a local here, um, who runs Skinny Pop Popcorn and mm-hmm. Amplify Snack Brands. Um, yeah, that's just, there's Paul Graham, Sam mm-hmm. Altman. Um, Sorry for the other people we didn't mention. Yeah, I have <laughs> so, a that's okay. This, this isn't is an Oscars acceptance speech. You don't have to <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a list of around, so my personal notes, every time I learn something about people and hiring, I added to that it's a massive list of around, I think by now, 20, 15 pages, hmm. all tips on hiring, like every note I take, every it's like a personal notebook. Every time I learn something about hiring, how to hire better, how to manage people better, I add it to my list and I constantly carry that around. And cool. there is 50 plus people people's advice in there. So. Yeah, that list. Well, yeah. Maybe I'll have a book someday. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where, where does that passion for constant learning come from? Is that just intrinsic to who you are? Did that come from somewhere external? It's just, I think, intrinsic. Constantly wanting to get better and like being a better self tomorrow or going to bed at night knowing I've learned something and I'm a better person in, in what, whatever dimension that may be than when I woke up. Are there any any books or resources you guys are going through right now? Or either something you just finished, something you're reading or digesting or thinking about right now, or something you're about to start reading? Yeah. Okay. So overall, on reading and books, a core principle we follow, and we've learned our lesson in that we, we got distracted by a lot of reading and sure. research. It's a great way to procrastinate. Exactly. Well, you f- <laughs> same, same. It's one of those 80 it, that exactly. it's, it's hides a, it's itself. It's a sneaky one. It's a sneaky one. You feel like you're, ex- you're, doing, you're being productive when, in fact, you aren't. Mm-hmm. So taking that into account and limiting the amount of time you spend learning from a book or in a classroom or a course um, versus executing and actually getting stuff done... Um, that's been a big learning overall. Um, we take the approach of we try to focus all the books we read, all the courses we take, on anything we can apply within the next 90 days, or be it six months, because we want to read for practicality. So yeah, Otherwise, you're just going to have to reread it again later. Anyway. And, and we do reread a yeah. lot of the books. So a mistake, and I'm very ignorant, I'm very young, um, something I've seen a lot of people do is they read many, many books and then never revisit them. So just from a mathematical uh, perspective, there's also a distribution in the quality of books. And some of the books you've already read are much higher in quality and in in potential impact than any book currently on your book list. Um, So rereading that and actually honing in on on key concepts, just 
normal learning principles like spacing out repetition can be much more valuable than reading another book. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there a particular book then you're reading at the moment or about right to now, read? Right now, I think it's called High Velocity Hiring, which mm -hmm. is how do you hire for scale? Because as we're approaching or the next year with nine figures in, in prediction, um, that's going to take a whole different organizational structure and with a key constraint being growth uh, in, in terms of time. Mm -hmm. So, And from a personal side, we, we were reading two of Rolf de Belli's books. One is The Art of Thinking Clearly and The Art of a Good Life. Hmm. Which have been what was the, the author's name again? Rolf, Rolf Dobelli. Yeah. It's D-O-B-E-L-L-I. Dobelli. Okay. He's from Switzerland. Absolutely great books. Um, they teach psychological concepts. Um, so a lot of biases. Um, how did you guys choose those books? Because right? we were talking about how much time you can chew up and misspend on books. So selection, it's kind of like hiring people or vetting people. How did you guys end up both reading those books? It's referrals is how we source the list. So we look for people we've admired that have been successful at that specific thing, and we ask them, and we keep a list, and then we categorize them depending on what problem it solves. Mm -hmm. um, so in the case of hiring, we have like a list of hiring. So if we're having a hiring issue, we go and try to read those. Um, so it's mainly, mainly refer, I don't remember who referred over mm -hmm. off to belly. Um, that's okay. Yeah. It's more of the yeah. process. Yeah. But ultimately a note on the reading and the learning is that the ultimate, the ultimate teacher is, ex is experience is the, the best way to learn is experimenting and you can sit down and read seven books on hiring, but you'll learn way more the time you hire a person and that it ends up being a really bad hire. Um, so you know, you, you can be a victim of like thinking paralysis and sit down yeah. and contemplate what are the different options I can, different books I can read on hiring. And that's good to have some, some knowledge ahead of time, but then ultimately take the leap and, and do whatever is it that you're trying to do. And you'll learn way more from the feedback and reflect on what you did right and wrong as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah it makes me think of something um, I was, that was imparted to me by a woman named Kathy Sierra, very smart, which was focusing on, just in time information instead of just in case information. Yeah, yeah. that's Which a makes, good way to put it. Makes a huge, huge difference. Well, uh, this has been really fun. Lynn, do you have any 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 last questions that you'd like to ask before we wrap up with these these gents? I do have <laughs> one question for the listeners who are not very mathematical. What advice would you give them if they wanted to follow your lead? I would say you have an advantage because you keep it simple. Um, we, we've been victims of overcomplicating a lot of things because we, we find ways to overcomplicate it. So you don't really need math. Um, try to understand the world um, from, from a trend perspective. So all that takes is just read basics on, on stats. What, what is a correlation versus just a number uh, and what establishes a correlation? But other than that is you really don't need... If it's too complicated, it's probably not the way. There's very simple ways of doing everything. Um, so you probably have an, an edge on that. Yeah, one of my friends, uh, Nick Ganju, who's one of the co-founders of ZocDoc, uh, very CS quantitative. Uh, and I want to say, I might be getting this wrong, He's he's been on the podcast as somebody might be able to, to correct me here, but I believe you recommended a book called How to Measure Anything, which awesome. is very helpful for taking fuzzy thinking and making it uh, more discreet, just yeah. e e easier to examine and which doesn't mean I've never taken calculus for God's sake. So I've, I have, I have, <laughs> I'm like, you know, calculate the what hypotenuse. Oh, Jesus. Here we go. So I'm about as, yeah, about as basic as it gets, but you 
you don't need a lot. You just need to really get good at measuring what matters and very few things matter a lot. And uh, you need to be very good at pausing and checking your assumptions, among other things. Yeah. Uh, so guys, where can people, if you would like them to learn more about you or uh, just follow what you guys are up to, if, if that's even an option. Uh, but for, for those people like, who knows, maybe Ben Silverman, who's been in one of my books or one of these people, maybe they're listening to the podcast and they're like, Oh, you know, maybe I should send a hand wave to these folks. Is there any, <laughs> is there any way to do that? So it's Benny Tag Benny Tago group, right? B E N I T A G O. Benny Tago. Yeah. Okay. B E N I T A G O. All right. We and have bentago.com and we are both on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And we pride ourselves on not having any other social media outlet out there. That is, that is <laughs> we're focused on growing. Yeah, that, I think that is a fantastic policy. Uh, well, thank you guys for taking the time. I know that uh, you have lots of exciting things coming up, so I wish you well. Thanks, Thanks. Tim and Elaine. Thank you for spending time with us as well. Thank you, Tim. This was fun. And uh, to everybody listening. We'll have links to everything, all the books and so on, resources, Upwork, the one thing, 1688, Cash Cow Pro. <laughs> Spl- <laughs> you forgot Cash for Ties. Spl- <laughs> and don't forget to Cash for Ties. Uh, we'll all be available in the show notes at tim.blog forward slash podcast. And until next time, thank you for listening. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? And would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Charlotte's Web, which makes a CBD oil, a hemp extract that has become one of my go-to tools. Now, I have never really talked about CBD oil, and cannabis has never really been the plant for me. I know we're talking about hemp, uh, but nonetheless, after several nights of inexplicable insomnia, this was about a year ago, I just could not get to sleep to save my life. And after other fixes failed, so melatonin, California poppy, extract, da-da-da-da-da, an elite athlete introduced me to this non-psychoactive extract, and bam! Problem solved. I had some of the best sleep that I'd had in months. Now, I don't use sleep aids on a daily basis, but this has become part of my toolkit, and I hope to be exploring other applications soon. CBD oil products have exploded in popularity in the health and wellness and fitness worlds, and Charlotte's Web is one of the top players that offers broad-spectrum hemp extract with CBD in the form of oils, capsules, and topical products. Charlotte's Web products will not get you high, so that maybe that is good news, maybe bad news to you, but it does have 
some powerful benefits and uh, applications. And it works with your body's existing endocannabinoid system. Endo meaning from within, like endo versus exoskeleton, for instance. So endocannabinoid system works with your body. Some of the most common uses are for relief from everyday stressors, help in supporting restful sleep, which is what I most often use it for, uh, to bring about a sense of calm and focus. A lot of my friends use it for that. CBD is also known or becoming known for helping athletes to recover from exercise-induced inflammation. Charlotte's Web Hemp Extract has naturally occurring terpenes, flavonoids, and other valuable hemp compounds that work synergistically to heighten positive effects, sometimes referred to as the entourage effect, which you guys can look up, making it more complete than single compound CBD alternatives, or at least that is what I've been told. I do not know much about CBD alternatives nor single compound. In any case, check it out. This stuff has really worked for me. So jump over to cwhemp.com forward slash Tim cw is in charlotte's web cwhemp.com forward slash tim to take a quick quiz which will determine the best product for your particular aims lifestyle etc and they ship to all 50 states charlotte's web are offering listeners of this podcast 10 percent off of their purchase while there are some exclusions i personally use the extra strength cbd oils or the extra strength capsules and uh, you can see what might be a fit for you on that page and there is a 30-day risk-free guarantee, so why not try it out? So get 10% off of your purchase at cwhemp.com forward slash Tim. And disclaimer, these statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Peloton, which I've been using probably for about a year now. Peloton is a cutting-edge indoor cycling bike that brings live studio classes right into your home. You can also do on-demand, which is what I do. We'll come back to that. So you don't have to worry about fitting classes into a busy schedule or making it to a studio or gym with a hectic or unpredictable commute. I, for instance, have a Peloton bike right in my master bedroom at home, and it's one of the first things I do many mornings. I wake up, I meditate for a bit, then I knock out a short 20-minute ride in my undies, hard to do that at the gym, take a shower, and I'm in higher gear for the rest of the day. It's really convenient and has become something that I look forward to. So you have a lot of options. For one, if you'd like, you can ride live with thousands of other riders across the country on an interactive leaderboard to keep you motivated. There are also up to 14 new classes added every day with more than 8,000 classes on demand. And you can pick based on length, 45 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever, music, hip hop, rock and roll, or say low impact versus high intensity or interval. You can pick the class structure and style that works for you. And in my case, I quite like Matt Wilpers, and I tend to do on-demand and listen to a lot of and watch many of the same classes over and over, but I'm kind of promiscuous and also enjoy classes from a lot of the other instructors. They have Peloton, an amazing roster of incredible instructors in New York City with a whole range of styles and personalities, so you can find what you're in the mood for. You also get real-time metrics that you can use to track your performance over time, and that will help I would say catalyze you to beat your personal best. Now that all sounds good, right? Gamification, yada, yada, yada. I didn't think that it would work for me or in any way incentivize me, but they really 100% hit the nail on the head. I was very, very impressed with how motivating it was. And it worked tremendously to keep me pushing, uh, which quite honestly takes a fair amount. I can get quite lazy, particularly with anything that edges on endurance, which is kind of more than five reps of anything for me. So. Check it out. 
Discover this cutting-edge indoor cycling bike that brings the studio experience right to your home. Peloton is offering listeners of this podcast a limited-time offer. Go to OnePeloton.com. That's O-N-E, Peloton, P-E-L-O-T-O-N.com. And enter the code TIM, all caps, at checkout and get $100 off of accessories with your Peloton bike purchase. So get a great workout at home anytime you want. Check it out. Go to OnePeloton.com and use the code TIM to get started.